Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly speaker series podcast. This week, we are joined by Asim Khawaja, the director of the Center for International Development and the Sumitomo Foundation for Advanced Studies on International Development Professor of International Finance and Development at the Harvard Kennedy School and co-founder of the Center for Economic Research in Pakistan. I'm sitting with Professor Khawaja after his appearance on the CID speaker series this past Friday, November 13th. Asim, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. Could you briefly define the smart containment with active learning scale approach for our listeners in the context of decision making under policy uncertainty? Great. Uh, so uh, thank you for that opportunity. So the idea is, I think, borrowed, as you said, from very standard frameworks of decision making under uncertainty. And a key element of that framework is if you don't know precisely kind of the parameters of the space you're in and some of the consequences of what you may be doing, it's pretty critical that you learn while you're doing. And that's fine. It's, it's okay to, to operate with kind of partial knowledge as long as you're building knowledge as you proceed. So that's kind of a critical component of the kind of scale strategy that we were proposing and have been proposing and kind of working in a couple of countries on in terms of some of the more specifics, I would say, in addition to this idea of kind of active learning, and that's what it is, smart containment for active learning is what SCALE stands for. So what I just said is kind of the first attribute of that strategy, which is whatever you do, collect information, collect data in the process. So as you're doing your learning and improving your policy or, or your strategy, so that's kind of one key leg in this strategy. There are two other legs which go naturally with this, and I'll mention them briefly as well. The other is this idea of if you're actively learning, and if that means you don't know necessarily the right answer, don't try and do one size fits all. It's very unlikely that as you try and contain this pandemic, and sadly in a lot of countries now we're in our second wave, in some places actually the third wave, don't try and treat your entire country with the same exact policy. So have a sense of gridding, as we would call it, your physical space. So some areas may, and we're seeing this, there's a lot of variation in COVID prevalence in areas or denser areas with certain demographics and certain migratory or movement patterns may be more at risk. And so the idea would be first, you should basically try and, if you will, partition your physical space into as small a unit as you can. Let's call that unit a grid. And then the third element which goes with this idea is once you have these grids, it's important to grade or if you want color code these grids based on say COVID prevalence or predicted COVID prevalence, right? And now once you have this idea that you've partitioned your space into smaller, more manageable pieces and each of these pieces you've color coded into where they are, now you can have differential policy responses in each of these different areas. And I want to be careful when I say differential, that doesn't mean like there's a thousand different things you're doing, because that will operationally be extremely challenging from a feasibility of implementation perspective. But even if you had like four or five different color grades, you know, from like green where it's not that bad to red where things are really bad, you just need three or four of these categories. And for each category, you could have an associated response in terms of what you're measuring, in terms of what your containment policy should be, you know, should schools be open or not be open, kind of questions like that. But then the nice thing is, as long as you're measuring outcomes, both COVID outcomes and kind of non-COVID health outcomes every two or three weeks, say, you could revalue, this is the active learning component, you could reevaluate the impact of your policies. Is it working or is it not working? And as you learn, 
And because you have, if you will, these hundreds of different policy variations running in your space, you can actually really rapidly learn from, from these policy interventions you're doing and, and adjust in real time. You don't have to wait for months or years. Within weeks, you could figure out this particular way of containing wasn't working, so let me tighten it or let me change it. Thank you so much. I mean, to help us better really understand the, the strategic importance of such an approach, in the policy brief about scale, there is an acknowledgement that low-income countries are hit particularly hard. And you indicated in that brief that the lockdown reopen trade-off may not just be about lives versus livelihoods, but lives versus lives. Can you elaborate on that? And what is the motivation for CID to engage in this type of real-time research? It's a great question. On the first one, look, we're, we're all talking about, say, in the developed world, about the economic cost. It's trillions of dollars. Uh, but very much the language there has been, as you said, lives versus livelihoods. So as you lock down, people aren't talking about lockdown killing you, at least not in a literal sense. Maybe mentally you're upset and, you know, but that's, that's really the luxury of the rich. In a lot of poor countries, unfortunately, the trade-offs is, as you said, very much lives versus lives. So as you lock down, if women who deliver in hospitals and may have complications are unable to deliver in hospitals, you could be risking mother's life and child's life. Uh, and so you may be trading off lives. Uh, what's happened, though, and, and this is an interesting, and, and it, there's a lot of variation in poor countries. In some poor countries, actually, the COVID mortality has been lower than expected. And so if anything... In those countries, as much as we're trying to contain the disease, we need to be very careful, especially if mortality from COVID is low, that we don't introduce mortality from other things, like if you're diabetic or like I mentioned. Uh, so we need to make sure other health situations aren't worsening to the point. And when people are on the verge of poverty, it's not that hard to imagine food insecurity leading to death, situations like that. And so... But like, like I said, in a lot of developing countries, when we initially went into this, we thought there'd be a lots of COVID-related mortalities, and lots of countries have somehow escaped that. A lot of Africa has escaped some of these things. Uh, some countries in South Asia have escaped it. Others have not. Latin America has had much higher instances and problems. So it's not, but I think the, the question is still well posed for any emerging economy where it really is lives versus lives. And it comes back to my earlier response, which is we need to measure both mortality, which is due to COVID, or mortality, which is due to policies that we implemented to prevent COVID. Both forms of mortality are things we need to be preventing in poor countries. So it's both the direct and indirect, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so studying excess mortality is going to be critical and trying to distinguish reasons for excess mortality is going to be critical. Because if you find out that most deaths are actually not coming from COVID, but because of the lockdowns or not having patients access hospitals or, or limited tertiary healthcare or, or restricting nurses and tertiary paramedical staff from visiting places, then the policy response is to open up at least that sector. Right? And that's a very different response from blanket closures. Um, whilst, why CID is into this? I feel like one of CID's important objective is to solve some of the most pressing problems faced by people in the world. And gosh, this is one of the most pressing problems that we are facing, not just now, but in the years to come. So it's very much part of what we feel we should be doing and kind of the talent and expertise we think we should be convening to solve some of these problems. Thank you so much for shedding light on motivation and sort of the nuances of how the, the issue really should be approached. During pandemics and crises such as this one, governments find themselves in constant firefighting mode. And yet, how do you reconcile that sense of urgency 
with the need to plan and engage in active learning as embedded in the scale approach. Yeah, that's tough. All implementing agencies, governments in particular, are always trading off what I would call firefighting with strategic thinking. It's the perennial challenge. And let me first start by saying, look, there's no easy answer. Second, let me also say something. I want to acknowledge, look, firefighting is incredibly valuable. There is a fire. It's important to put it out. There's no denying that. So sort of, it's often this luxury that researchers and academics have to say, hey, you guys are always firefighting, but not thinking. Well, gosh, if we stop firefighting, guess what's going to happen? And so, so I want to acknowledge that when this pandemic hit in the countries that I was involved with or working with, I mean, hats off to the government. Like in pretty much most economies that I saw, especially poor economies, especially emerging economies, where you'd think, you know, this would be harder to do. The, the individuals, whether it be frontline workers or back-end workers, just the sheer energy of people and the willingness to put their lives at risk and the hours they put in was remarkable. I've always um, been impressed by generally people who are working in these tough situations, but gosh, in this context, I've seen people do so hats off to them. So I, I want to be careful when I'm trying to be critical. It's not at the expense of that effort at all. Now, to your question about, well, how do you build that capacity? I think the onus is on us to create the space through partnerships. The analogy is if your entire city is on fire and you're supposed to go to the various fire stations, say, guys, stop and think, stop and think. I think that's unfair. But there are two things we can do. One is we can join forces and say, guys, we know you have to put out the fires. Let's make it very easy for you to A, do that. B, while you're doing that, let's try and in the course of your normal operation, let's add small things you can do, feasible things, which can improve learning. So for instance, let me give you a tangible example. Mm -hmm. If we're going there and testing people because we're worried about disease spread, one important thing for learning would be what is the socioeconomic profiles of people who are sick or not sick? That's critical, right? Who is getting more ill? Is it men? Is it women? Is it young? Is it old? Is it migrant workers? Is it residential people, right? Now, it's, it's not that difficult if you have a team going in already doing testing to embed very small, short surveys in that, right? Which are part of their standard operating procedures, part of their work procedures. In fact, you can do it in a way that they become more welcome. You can also do it in a way where they don't have to be administering the surveys. You can just say, while you're on the spot, just call this number and we'll talk to the person while you're doing what you're doing. So you try and leverage the existing effort in very small, but impactful ways. I think that's the kind of uh, thing. And then second, you really build capacity. What's happened in, in any firefighting is the fire that you get today, likely you may get tomorrow as well, right? And that's what's happening already in wave one and wave two. And so some of these learnings, when they're slightly lighter periods where there was in between wave one and wave two, embedding and building processes of decision-making is really gonna help in wave two. And that's already beginning to see, we see that in many countries where they've now built that capacity, they're a bit less in, in fire frenzy mode because they've seen that fire before, right? So they're not overly panicking and that's creating positive space as well. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about some of the experiences on the ground. Let's talk a little bit about Pakistan where the scale approach has, is being implemented. What are some of the lessons learned for other developing countries? I would say even in Pakistan, where, you know, we've had a lot of presence and immense support, you know, it's hard to implement these things. I mean, so when I, when I gave the initial criteria, this is the aspiration, but in practice, things, some things can happen well and some things don't happen well. So I think the first lesson is not to have perfection become a reason not to act. I, I think even if you take a few insights from these, they could be powerful. 
And so for me, a couple of insights that I think countries like Pakistan have taken on, and Pakistan has done actually, I must say remarkably well, whether it be divine intervention, like a lot of Pakistanis think, or actually something about, which I'm hopeful in addition, about sort of smarter policies. A couple of things they did, I think, were sensible and continue to be sensible. One is very early on, they started doing these partial lockdowns. They started realizing that you wouldn't shut the entire city down, but shutting bits and pieces off it and gathering data to do it systematically. There was already the sort of seed zone of that. And we came in and just encouraged that, supported that as best as we could. And I think that idea is going to be really critical. What I said earlier about grading and grading. And that very much is a lesson that I think in whatever form you can apply it, whatever size you can apply, maybe you can't go as low as small city neighborhoods, maybe you have to do larger blocks, maybe you have to clump villages together, whatever unit you could do, that principle is gonna be really important. I think that's one. The second thing I would say, which is also important is recognizing the value of frontline workers. And this is a challenge often, right? Protecting, getting PPE, protecting them, protecting the kind of really people in the front lines. There are many instances in, in my work in Pakistan where I saw that was happening, other instances where it didn't. And I think that makes a world of a difference. And that's going to be really important because those are going to be your, if you think your, your key nerve endings, you need to be able to get that information flow going. You need those individuals to feel like they can go out, be protected, be recognized and, and be supported. The third lesson, I think, which is not necessarily a positive lesson, but a tough one, which is there are lots of people lobbying. There are lots of stakeholders in this. So, uh, and that's true in every economy. There are people who are the public health guys who are gonna cry foul if you don't protect people's lives from COVID. There are people who are the private sector guys who are gonna cry foul if firms are constantly shut down. And I think trying to, to shout each other out is not the way to go. And there are instances when I saw that was happening in the context I was working in where people try and, you know, if I'm more powerful today, my voice gets listened to. Instead, recognizing that each of these individuals has a legitimate issue, not challenging and say, well, why is your problem worth dealing? It is, right? If, if you're losing your livelihood because you can't open shop and sell anymore, that is a problem. We need to figure out how to deal with it. And for me, the solution, and this is, I have partial success in this, but I still feel like that's the way to go, is use evidence and data as an adjudicator. This is easier said than done, especially at a time when you're crying fake news and false data in a world like that, it's, it's harder and harder. But to be honest, if you can say, hey, Shada, you have one issue and, and I have another issue, let's try and measure the severity of, let's acknowledge our issues and let's put the resources in to measure each issue. In fact, let's get you to help with measuring these problems. And let's, before we decide who's right or wrong, at least let's measure it and come back. And sometimes we come back and both our issues are first order and then we have to hash it out. Other times our problem is less so than we thought. And then we allow space for the other person to, to at least push a bit of their agenda. I think that's gonna be an important lesson as well. So that's really interesting. Uh, you're describing sort of data as an arbitrar really and a way to get people to collaborate in such a very uh, multidisciplinary kind of context. But in order to get data, how much is that contingent on countries having high technology or you know how much can you implement a robust data collection and analysis system in a developing country setting you know it's interesting actually let me talk about data in two ways data which we actively gather which is a traditional way of doing data gathering like massive surveys we do send teams of enumerators in and those seem like high capacity requiring things now again it's not obvious by the way the developing countries are lost there because guess what we have a lot of people 
So serving is actually cheaper. So even in that front, I don't think data necessarily is overly costly, simply because we have a lot of manpower in poor countries to be able to do things. But what also has happened, and this is important to acknowledge, is there's a lot of technology leapfrogging. So there's another kind of data, which is passive data, data which exists and is being created, but one doesn't simply utilize it. So for instance, let me give you an example. If I'm trying to estimate population in a country, this is something we all countries do, and we do censuses, and it's a really big exercise. Instead, I'm not arguing that we stop doing censuses, that has a particular political and legal role, and so it's important to enumerate very carefully. But if we have a, want to get a rough sense of population, you could get things like cell phone usage, right? Just how many SIM cards are floating around? How many people are actively making calls? And that gives you a sense of rough population size and movement of people. And COVID was a perfect example of that, where accessing CDR data, cell phone data records, was a way for any country, and, and pretty much mobile technology is everywhere. Now, if, I, if anything, poorer countries have more mobile technology because they've kind of leapfrogged laying landlines because it's kind of cheaper to have a few towers and SIM cards are cheap and phones are cheap. So if you could get the large telcos to collaborate and say, look, we're worried about mobility, let's say, in COVID. We're worried that place A may be infecting place B. Well, how do I know place A is infecting place B? Well, if you knew, if you could track people's movement, now how do I normally do that? Do I keep a guard who looks at place A and says, where are you going? Let me do a survey. Are you going to place B? Or do you simply say, I, I know someone's same, I know where they live because that's where they're, that's the closest tower to them. I can see where that sim is moving. And I can tell you that people from A move more to B and not to C. And that data is readily available. It's instantaneously available. So a lot of data to me is now less about, do we do a survey? And more about, can we get access to the data and can we get the right strategy and the algorithms to run in a way that we get the data to be useful, but also protect privacy and, and other concerns that you might have. And so, so I've, I've never, and let me say this kind of even more strongly, I've never lacked data in any country that I've worked in. I've often lacked access to data, and that's a very different thing. And I think the same will hold in this context. There's lots of good data that we could get, which would be fundamental in addressing COVID. Thank you so much for addressing. Uh, so it's good to know that data isn't really an impediment in, in this kind of approach. You can find more information about Awesome's work at the CID website, and you can follow him on Twitter at AI Khawaja. Thank you again, Awesome, for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research, events, and upcoming events at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next week.